just came across our favorite joke of the day. Roseanne Barr puts the Ambien back in I am being a racist, which is pretty funny. Apparently, the apparently the believe it or not, social media has not reacted well to her. Uh, claim that she was all uh, hopped up on Ambien, and that's what happened. They're not being patient, understanding, and uh, charitable? <laughs> on social media, no. Not really. I'll be damned. Maybe we'll hit you with some of those later. Well, uh, yeah, uh, now something completely different. Uh, Barry Meyer, um, is, uh, he worked for a long time as a New York Times reporter. He's the author of Painkiller, an Empire of Deceit. And he's been writing lately about the fact that uh, major pharmaceutical companies knew opioids were highly addictive, but were claiming quite explicitly otherwise. And Mr. Meyer joins us now. Uh, Barry, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. You know, one of the frustrations um, in observing the media these days, and we were just talking about this in another context, is that there's so much Stormy Daniels and Trump gossip and the rest of it. You've got a story as incredibly important as this one. To us, not getting nearly enough attention, but having said that, what should we know about the uh, the marketing, the claims about uh, your uh, opioids by the companies and how that uh, compares to reality? Well, uh, this story dealt specifically with the drug that has sort of become the symbol of the opioid epidemic, a drug called OxyContin, which was made by a company, Purdue Pharma. And uh, they they marketed it very aggressively uh, back in the late 90s and early 2000s for kind of the general treatment of pain, and it also only at that time. Dang it! While they you know they claimed it was less attractive to drug abusers, it could be easily crushed, and people were snorting it. Uh, what the new edition of the book reports and the story? Is there any chance we can get another phone line or something like that? Yeah, uh, unless, unless my hearing solidifies. Yeah. Unless my oxycontin abuse has caused my hearing to go, that uh, the that bad is, phone connection. That is a symptom. Um, I cannot hear a thing. Yeah, so uh, we'll get him back on the line. But we are learning more and more. I think with all these different companies and then their interaction with our own government, as to uh, lots of people knew this stuff was getting used, not for the reasons it's supposed to get used. You know, when you got a million pills going to one little town, something weird's going on there, and a lot of different people knew about these things, and yet it continued. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What's our... He's he's working on it. Okay, they're going to try again, get a different connection. But what's interesting about this headline, Origins of an Epidemic, is that we have something close to the ground zero of this whole thing and how it started. Indeed. And the claims the company ran uh, not only in the face of uh, knowledge that was was you know held by some people it was knowledge that they had uh anyway uh yeah barry meyer rejoins us with a a better connection we hope but uh so barry you're talking about purdue pharma go ahead yeah so essentially you know for years this company uh was promoting this drug as as uh, less abusable and less prone to addiction than competing opioids and when the problems publicly exploded with OxyContin, they claimed that, well, we just found out about this. We just learned about this in early 2000. In fact, the Justice Department, which uh, did an extensive investigation of the company in the early 2000s, found out that or concluded that the company knew about this almost immediately after the drug was introduced. So for three years, they were getting dozens, if not hundreds of reports related to the apparent abuse of this drug that they were concealing. They weren't letting doctors know about that. They weren't regula- letting regulators know about that. They, you know, According to the prosecutors, they were essentially covering it up. 
Is it the sort of thing, though, where, I mean, should they have had to disclose it because the very nature of the their drug was especially bad? Or was it, you know, more like I'm selling hammers, turns out people are hitting themselves in the head with hammers. How is that my fault? Um, is there culpability in your mind on uh, Purdue Pharma? I, I think here there specifically is, because they were given a special claim by the FDA. They were allowed to claim that this drug was essentially different than every other painkiller because it was a long-acting drug, and so it would be less attractive to drug abusers than shorter-acting painkillers like Vicodin or Percocet. So they had this special claim, and this claim was the you know, the sort of cornerstone of their massive promotion of OxyContin. You know, this became a billion-dollar drug. And then it turns out it's actually more addictive than those other it drugs? Is, it is certainly as, as addictive, as abusable. And once they became aware of that, you know, I, I don't know what their exact legal responsibilities were, but certainly uh, there was an imperative that they alert people that, you know, this drug can be abused as easily as well, yeah, any other absolutely. drug. Absolutely. I'm a guy who is really careful about using any painkillers. I stay away from them if, if I can at all because I'm worried about, you know, getting addicted. And if I'm told by a company, oh, this is much less addictive, well, then I think, okay, I'll take my chance with this one. Um, right. You know, I've been lied to in a way that could really affect me. Well, and not only that, you're talking about yourself as a, as a uh, patient or me as a patient. This is what was being said to doctors. Oh, this is what was being said right. to hospitals. This, this was being said to the people who were sort of the gatekeepers to our medical care. And as a result of these well, that's a crime. claims being made, they were you know, prescribing this stuff to beat the ban. So when you say it was uh, on the way to being a billion-dollar drug or was, is that uh, an annual figure eventually yeah. over its lifetime? Yes, it became, you know, selling between one and a half to two, million, two billion dollars. I mean, the, the Sacklers, the, the very secretive and wealthy company that owns Purdue Pharma, became like number 14 or 15 on the uh, Forbes Wealthiest Americans. Well, the, obviously the question is, was it selling so well, and it probably was selling so well, because of their claim that you wouldn't get addicted to this stuff. So that's the Absolutely. reason it was making so much money. Absolutely. I mean, otherwise it would not have been, it would have been just a kind of me too, common narcotic painkiller. Yeah, congratulations, you invented another Vicodin, big deal. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I see in your piece a number of different quotes from folks with Purdue Pharma saying, well, we didn't, uh, we weren't informed, we didn't see a pattern, or this is an isolated case, and you're, you're pretty strongly calling them on those statements. You know, people are free to claim what they believe. Uh, maybe they wanted, you know, felt, well, you know, when do we run up the white flag on this? I don't know. I can't look in their minds. I can't look in their hearts. All I can say is that when federal prosecutors examined this, they believed that this company had effectively covered this up, and they wanted to indict these executives, the very people saying, oh, well, this is no big deal, on very serious felony charges and were prevented from doing so by top officials within the Justice Department. God dang it. So this this opioid epidemic we got going on in the country, and it is the president declared it a 
national emergency or whatever. Um, there are a number of different things going. You got you got this one where you got a company lying saying no, no, this one's not addictive, so that gets people hooked. You've got companies that are you know sending a, a million pills to one pharmacy in a tiny town because they know they're shopping them out to fake doctors. So we got a bunch of different reasons this is happening, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know if we really want to figure out how to deal with this epidemic, and it's very complex, and there's not one single solution, we have to understand how it started. And I think, you know, when I wrote Painkiller originally in 2003, I told, you know, began to tell that story, and the new edition uh, that's out now kind of brings this story full circle, and I think sheds tremendous amount of light on, on, you know, some ways that we can start working ourselves out of this mess. Barry Meyer is referring to his book, Painkiller, and Empire of Deceit. Um, I, I assume you're pretty up on the fentanyl situation these days? Yeah, it's a terrible situation. I mean, uh-huh. essentially you have two separate problems going on. You have the uh, potential overuse and abuse of legal prescription painkillers, and then you have this flood in the last few years of, of counterfeit versions of fentanyl coming in from places like, you know, Mexico and China. And, you know, the the, the recent kind of Burton deaths are largely related to these counterfeit versions of fentanyl. But bear in mind, over 200,000 Americans have died uh, since the late 1990s from overdoses involving legal prescription drugs, prescription painkillers. Right, right. And 100,000, half of those people died between 2007 and 2012, which were the five years after this case was settled and and the critical documents that are in painkiller and were in the new york times yesterday were basically swept under the rug because of the government settlement with purdue right and i don't want to distract from the the full weight of that but what i'm thinking in terms of i read recently that fentanyl busted the border up 700 times or something like that and they uh, busted a truck in Nebraska that they think had enough fentanyl to kill 26 million people um, because as little as two milligrams can be fatal. Um, I, I could easily see a second wave of death and horror that was started by what you're talking about in your book and our conversation right now, leading to all these junkies we've created now, all these addicts. Uh, you know, desperate for a fix, getting some fentanyl accidentally. So I got hooked on the non-addictive OxyContin, Thanks supposedly. to Purdue Pharma's and uh, ta- efforts. And yeah. now I'm taking fentanyl. Yeah, and I could see a, a new I wave of horror. I think, that has been, you know, that, that has been the case for a number of people. And, uh, you know, it's like there is a part of this problem that's essentially, you know, like a law enforcement problem, which is the fentanyl end of the problem. And then there's the legal side of the problem, you know, sort of the Oxycontin side of the problem. Right. And, you know, it's sort of like these two things have to be dealt with almost separately. And and, and most of all, the people who become addicted, be it through legal narcotics or illegal narcotics, uh, we need to treat them, we need to deal with them compassionately, and, uh, you know, throwing them into a program and giving them 12 days of some sort of, you know, a drug uh, to try to get you know wean them off their addiction is not going to be adequate. I mean, if we really want to make a dent in this problem, the money and the resources 
for addiction treatment also need to be made available. I'm not the suing type, but man, if my uh, son, wife, mom died from OxyContin when they were told that it was non-addictive and the company knew it was, I'd want a chunk of freaking money Yeah, Listen, just to punish them. We're already running a little late, Barry, but uh, as briefly as you can, uh, tell us about the settlement you referenced. Oh, okay, so in 2007, um, after a four-year government investigation, Purdue Pharma agreed to pay $600 million in fines for misrepresenting the abuse and addiction risks. For a drug they're making a billion bucks a year on? Yeah. Uh, And three top company executives pled guilty to misdemeanors related to the company's marketing of the drug. But these particular charges did not hold them personally liable or blame them. However, what the prosecutors we now now know wanted to charge them with were serious felonies. Everything from conspiracy to false statements. So there would have been a trial. There would have been a big, high-profile trial of corporate drug executives. And there wasn't why? Because top officials in the George Bush administration uh, blocked that from happening. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, yeah, it is. And we know the drug industry gives a hell of a lot of money to a hell of a lot of politicians. Oh, yeah. Indeed we do. Yeah, Barry Meyer, Origins of an Epidemic. Um, I'm sorry, the uh, actual title of the book has been removed from my eyes for some reason. <laughs> Origins of an Epidemic, Purdue Pharma. It's new painkiller. It- okay. Painkiller, there you go. Uh, Barry, great to talk to you. I hope we can do it again. Uh, well done. Thank you, sir. All right, yeah, good to talk. Thanks. That's troubling. That's really troubling. We'll discuss that a little more coming up. But man, oh man, oh man, that's just so maddening. And like I said, this is this is one of like four different angles that these companies have gotten these drugs out there, and the government has worked with them in a variety of ways to allow it to happen. Right, right. Well, if you had lobbyists spreading around the money that they are, you could get a lot done, too. God dang it. Our text line is 415-295-KFTC. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I am scared to death of uh, painkillers. Just scared to death of them. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I've just known enough people who had no inclination toward, uh, you know, the drug lifestyle who've gotten sucked in and many of our listeners have communicated to us you know you're just in pain or are in pain right now and have found themselves you know under the weight of an addiction to this stuff having often been told that oh no 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 no, it's not very addictive at all yeah that's that's a full-on crime and i hear it is a bitch to get off the stuff oh Uh, I wish he'd have talked more about the history of OxyContin. It was originally given only to terminally ill cancer patients. Didn't know that. Mm. Because they thought it was so addictive? She's to market as, here's the drug you want to try, because you won't get hooked on it. And it turns out it's the worst. Yeah. I cannot hear a thing. Mm. That was what Rush Limbaugh was doing, right? And made himself deaf. Allegedly. Baby blues. 
I believe he claimed at the time that there was no relationship, but that's uh, rather an odd claim given the uh, well-known effects of OxyContin abuse. So I want to hit you with this story. So um, you got this journalist in uh, who was killed in the Ukrainian capital. Um, his wife found him dead at their apartment. Yikes. And it was your typical... Belly full of polonium? It was your typical Putin's killed another journalist sort of thing, sort of story, right? Yeah, very very well-known critic, war correspondent of, of Russian media, very outspoken uh, against. Okay. And he's found Dangerous dead. work. And, uh, and, and everybody was horrified that Putin had done it once again to uh, silence journalists. The story was he got shot in the back three times on his way to the store. A suicide. And again, his wife found him dead. Um, well, so today, the, uh, the, the police had a big press conference and just, just a couple hours ago in Kiev. And they said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, here is, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, Arkady Babchenko. Here he is. And he came walking out. The victim? The, the dead journalist came walking yeah. out. They had He's the, a ghost. The police and the journalists had faked it up to catch the people that were trying to kill him. Uh-huh. They thought they could, uh, you know, smoke him out that way. Because he knew that his life was in danger and that mm-hmm. there were people out to get him. Huh. How would that strategy work? I, I'm just curious. The head of the Ukrainian security I'm too service dumb to figure it out. told reporters the agency had faked the reporter's death to catch the people who were trying to kill him. Today, Ukrainian police had said that a popular Kremlin critic, this journalist and veteran Russian war correspondent, or they had recently said he was shot three times in the back uh, near his apartment. But today, uh, they talked about how he staged his own death as part of an investigation into threats made against his life. The plan had been in place for over a month. They've made one arrest in connection with the operation. Hmm. Um. Oh, that reminds me. He apologized to like his, you know, friends and everybody who thought he was dead and attended his funeral and everything like that. Mm. Sorry about that. Straight out of Sherlock. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Um. <laughs> oh, also the final episode of The Americans airs what tonight? Oh my the god! Series finale. Oh, I'm so excited. I didn't see this part. So he was apologizing to his friends who had attended his funeral, and he said he knows how sickening it was and everything like that, but it needed to be done. Special apologies to my wife. There was no other option. His wife thought he was dead. Wow, so they actually had her, quote-unquote, discover the body, and she wasn't in on it? Yes. Wow. I didn't understand that. Quick, get away from the body. Don't look at it anymore in case it breathes or something. Your husband's dead. Go mourn. Not sure I'm willing to go that far. The whole wife and kids think you're dead. Yar. Yipes! Wow, that's bold. I'd say. What's coming up in your news, Marshall? Well, we got an update on Roseanne's twisted tweets. Right to try about to become the law of the land, and U.S. promoters are bringing back a sport not sanctioned in more than a century. Bullfighting. Clearly bullfighting. Hmm? Coming up. Bare knuckle boxing? Is children working in factories smoking cigarettes a sport? <laughs> Bare knuckle cockfighting. <laughs> oh, coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show.
Texas just picked up Roseanne for a whole other season. I kid. I kid. No, they didn't. Why would you? I why kid. would you say that? I saw a couple of people say it on the social media yesterday. Well, stop it. Fox will pick her show up because they're all racist. The people who watch Fox, you see. Thanks for reinforcing that stereotype. Fox Sons isn't even of Birches. Fox isn't even Fox anymore. Didn't they merge with Disney? Like Fox News is its own thing. But I thought that mm. isn't no, that a big thing. I don't remember. I don't know. Fox I, Movie Studio, Fox TV. I don't believe Fox, any of it. Yeah. Let's get the news now with Marshall Phillips. Well, the maker of the popular sleep aid, Ambien's now trolling Roseanne. The maker saying that all medications do have side effects, but racism is not known to be one of them. <laughs> now stop it. This after Roseanne Barr blamed Ambien for her controversial tweet comparing one of President Obama's former staffers to an ape. I've, um... I've never believed that, like, uh, you know, uh, booze or drugs are truth serum. Nope. Uh, A little bit often is. A lot makes you think and do and say all kinds of crazy-ass that you don't even believe yourself. No. No. But I don't think I've ever gone racist. (laughs) Does that have to be in you to do that when you're all messed up? You could make a joke you know is wildly inappropriate because of the shock value of it. A lot of humor is like that. It's yeah. funny because it's shocking. Right, and you go way further because you're hammered. Right, you yeah. think, yeah, people will understand. I'm just trying to be shy. Yeah, your judgment of where the line right. is. That, exactly. could, that could definitely happen. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Roseanne Barr is blaming Wanda Sykes and co-stars. You throw me under the yeah. bus. She says, back on the tweeter. She turned, uh, uh, re- reposted a tweet by Sarah Gilbert. Um, blah, blah, blah. Wow, unreal. Gilbert called the initial comments abhorrent, do not reflect the beliefs of the, the show, blah, blah, blah. Wow, unreal, Roseanne wrote in response. No, I understand for her position. It just shocked me a bit. Um, blah, 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 blah. You throw me under the bus. Nice. I created the platform for that inclusivity, and you know it. It was me. Now you throw me under the bus. Nice. Responding to Michael Fishman, who played her son, DJ. Then she pointed a finger at Wanda Sykes. Her tweet made ABC very nervous, and they canceled the show. Ah. Somebody's tweet made him nervous. I don't know if it was yeah. Wanda Sykes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In another tweet, Barr said she was very sorry, but she'd defend herself, adding, I'm tired of being attacked and belittled more than other comedians who have said worse. Okay, who are they and what do they say? You'll have to give me the examples. Don't have an example in this particular tweet, <laughs> sir. Anyway, Roseanne also implied that she was really fired over her support for President Trump. Okay. So, on it goes. And then she tweeted... uh, A lot of the media's glee with her losing her show has to do with that. Right, right. Uh, She tweeted, then deleted the following, I just want to apologize to the hundreds of people and wonderful writers, all liberal, and talented actors who lost their jobs on my show due to my stupid tweet. But then deleted that one for some reason. Hmm. Meanwhile... Another story today, President Trump is about to sign the Right to Try bill. Now, this is a bill that aims to give some hope to people who are dying. It allows terminally ill patients to go ahead and seek and use experimental drugs that have not been fully cleared by the FDA. Okay, see, when you put it that way, I I have trouble being happy about this. The right thing is happening. Finally. but But the fact that it took so long to get the MFing government... To allow you to take whatever drug you want when you're dying, whether I decide a cup of gasoline's a good idea or whatever, it's my choice. I'm dying and it's my life. 
God, you... The, the, and a lot of these judge, the drugs are being used around the world. They just haven't quite cleared the FDA. The pro-choice crowd is so singularly focused on a lot of pro-choice. Uh, you, you... On choice in abortion. Right. Yeah. Not use your property. It's your body. You make Unless living. you're dying, then, you know, only government-approved drugs. What? Anyway, that's over. And we got a case for the freedom to tea. A U.S. District Court judge says a student at Hillsboro High can go ahead and continue wearing his pro-border wall t-shirt, at least for now. The judge granting a temporary restraining order against Liberty High School in Oregon on behalf of 18-year-old Addison Barnes. Barnes, you'll recall, got kicked out of class in January after he wore a shirt to school that read, quote, Donald J. Trump Border Wall Construction Company... The wall just got 10 feet taller. Oh, God. He was ordered to cover up the message on his shirt. At first he did, but then he said, nah, this isn't right. That's when Vice President of uh, Principal Amanda Ryan Fear moved in and told him to go home. Now the judge says, no, you can go ahead and wear the shirt at least for, you know, 30 days while we reconsider whether yeah. or not uh, your rights have been violated. Well, the, the stance has definitely got to be to, to err toward the side of free speech, no mm-hmm. doubt. That's uh, a designed-to-be-provocative shirt, though, don't you think? Yes, it is. It absolutely is. And I sympathize with the kid, but, oh, man, depends on the nature of the school and how much unrest that's going to cause. I mean, the number one challenge educators have these days is trying to keep order. Yep. So I have some sympathy for them, and it pains me to say that. Hey, it's worth throwing in, and Marshall didn't because he's uh, resentful. He's, he's just <laughs> unprofessional. He's incompetent. Uh, kudos to uh, Christina Sandifer yes. and the folks at the Goldwater Institute yes. have been fighting like tigers for the right to try for years now and finally got that through enough state legislatures that the national legislature, uh, the Parliament of Horrors, as uh, P.J. O'Rourke called him, <laughs> uh, finally had to go ahead and do the right thing. So congrats, Christina, and everybody at uh, Goldwater. I feel like we got to throw this in yeah. because it was a fairly big deal all day long yesterday that uh, Trump did not respond to the rosy not Rosie, Roseanne, Roseanne. controversy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, press spokesman was asked about it. She said we're not. He's focused on North Korea. He has just weighed in for the oh first my. time. Breaking news, breaking news. With this tweet. He has jumped into the Roseanne bar controversy. Yeah. Brace yourselves. I think he should have stayed completely out of it, but this is what he said. Uh-huh. Bob, Bob Iger of ABC called Valerie Jarrett to let her know that ABC does not tolerate comments like those made by Roseanne Barr. Gee, he never called President Donald J. Trump to apologize for the horrible statements said about me on ABC. Maybe I just didn't get the call. So there you go. You're a white guy. Shut up. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't. As usual, I'm not sure he did himself any good. All right, I threw this. Uh, I threw this uh, teaser out uh, before uh, the uh, break. Looks like U.S. promoters are getting ready to bring back a sport that hasn't been sanctioned in the U.S. for more than a century. It's either cockfighting or bullfighting. No, but you actually guessed it correctly, Jack. Cock and bullfighting. No, bare-knuckle boxing. Ah. Coming back Isn't that what MMA is, more or less? No, they still have uh, they have four ounce gloves. Do they? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, yeah. the gloves are more to protect the fighter's hands than the other yeah. person's head. It's mm. if you didn't have so glo- it would seem. Yeah, if you didn't have gloves on, the fights <laughs> would just be over. People's hands would be broken. 
cool. A group called Bare Knuckle <laughs> Fighting Champions is putting on a legal night of bare knuckle bouts this Saturday in Cheyenne, Wyoming. That's the perfect place for it. It'll be the first <laughs> legally sanctioned no gloves bouts in this country since 1889. Why was it never made illegal? If two guys want to beat each other with their bare fists, getting back to the right to try argument, why would the god dang government say no you can't do that in the land of the free and the home of the brave? That's crazy. I want to see five guys in the ring at once. Free for all. <laughs> How do you justify in the United States of America calling us the land of the free when the government makes it illegal to, illegal for two people who are sane to punch to each punch other in the face? <laughs> Our sacred right. Now, Sean, the matches will include former UFC heavyweight champion Rico Rodriguez, former Bellator heavyweight Eric Prindle, and former boxer Paul uh, Spaforda. Are you allowed to, have a, allowed to have a roll of nickels in your hand? Is that part of the deal? Certainly not. Now, this is strictly boxing. It's not like a grappling or some sort of like street fight sort Eric of thing. Just about boxing. Yeah. boxing. Yeah. They're going to wear the long johns like the old-timey pictures oh, I see. Yes. The winner will be the first guy who masters the art of catching the other person's punches with the top of his head. That, that person wins. The other person throws a punch, you... Dip your head down, lands on the top of the head. That guy's hand's broken. I win the fight. <laughs> then you punch him. <laughs> Bare knuckle strategies right here in the Armstrong and Getty Show. <laughs> uh, I got tons of them. I've, I've spent a lot of time studying the art of chess boxing. Are you guys familiar with no. chess boxing? What's this is where chess you, boxing? You do it's alternating rounds of about three to five minutes, depending on where yeah. the rules are. You play three to five minutes of chess and then three to five minutes oh, of boxing. I thought you were saying chest. <laughs> no, it is very important to be. Although a, some people call chess chest, which yeah, has always amused oh, me. Yeah. It is very important to be a good defender. Defensive chess player uh, you can and beat. a strong puncher no, if you want to be good guy, at chess boxing. A guy who calls chess chess, you can probably beat at chess. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, that's right. Almost certainly. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. But I hope you leave enough room for my fist because I'm going to ram it into your stomach. Your uh, levels of knowledge on alternative <laughs> fist fights is oh, uh, scary. <laughs> quite impressive. I'm not really paying attention until they do the full-on kickboxer. They wrap them in hands, dip their hands in glue, and then you get, like, nails or glass on the... What? Yeah, that's stop all. making oh, stop talking. Talking. That's probably oh. was in a movie. They wouldn't yes, make it up. That is true. So we're going to talk to a reporter who is actually in one of the Starbucks' sensitivity training class, classes yesterday. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Starbucks employees. I'm here today because you f***ed up, but that's fine. After today's training, those racial insensitivities will be a thing of the past. But first, a word to the black employees watching. You good, my dude. Take off. Y'all ain't got to watch none of this. You're straight. <laughs> so that's an actual leaked tape from some no. of these Starbucks. I don't believe that's correct. Racial no, sensitivity training. An attempt at humor from The Daily Show. So I heard somebody think throw out that the Howard Schultz, the guy who, uh, who runs Starbucks, and has come up with a lot of brilliant ideas, really smart guy, that he he's thinking of politics, running for president or something. Oh, yeah. had, you, had you heard that anywhere? Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So this could be part of that. Yeah, it could be. 
I I actually heard his description of what he wanted Starbucks to be, and this squares with that pretty well. A but place it, that tricks you into spending three bucks for a cup of coffee? Uh, right, uh, that that sells milkshakes masquerading as coffee. Right, exactly. He's Ra- good at that. Rachel Siegel is a national business reporter for the Washington Post, and not only uh, took a crash course on the Starbucks bias training, but talked to a bunch of people who took the full course, and Rachel joins us now. Hi, Rachel. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Terrific. I am a premium Starbucks member, so (laughs) probably keep that in mind during the interview. Yeah. So tell us about the uh, nature of the training. Sure. So um, the training was basically split up um, with partners or Starbucks employees is what they're called, um, breaking up into small groups. And they would go through video footage that was available on an iPad. And they also got to go through a workbook. Sort of. Do they regularly, pen and paper. Did they regularly call each other by the wrong name? I'll bet that happened a lot. <laughs> they seem to do that at Starbucks. Uh, uh, well, I'm not exactly sure, but um, basically they would sort of break up into small groups and go through the training um, with all these videos and uh, sort of pen to paper workbook sessions um, over the course of four hours yesterday. Four hours? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if you've ever attended any of these where you work. I mean, we have, but four hours, that's a long one. They got breaks. They got breaks, but they, it was supposed to be for four hours, and the stores um, didn't open back up afterwards, so people went back to work this morning. Yeah. Okay, so uh, from what we understand, we've gotten some of the materials uh, sent to us, but uh, so they were examining their own feelings about race and their own race and their awakenings and the rest of it uh, all, and I've read your piece, and it's very good, but uh, all in a, an attempt, I think, to develop empathy for people who have different uh, you know, identities or race or skin color, et cetera. The curriculum was, you know, definitely focused on having people identify differences among the other people in the group that they were working on, working in. Um, and sort of beyond that, after there was an examination of how people have experienced bias in their own lives or maybe perceptions that they have towards others, uh, there were sort of tools put in place to help people respond when they come back to work the next day. But I think that action part of it will definitely be part of the initiatives that Starbucks has planned um, beyond just yesterday afternoon. Uh, so the focus definitely was around getting people to recognize and and understand their own biases and sort of recognize that they exist at all. So I understand that you talked to baristas and employees when they came out afterwards. What, What did they have to say? Sure. So I talked to a group of district managers in the New York area, and they talked about being, you know, struck by particular moments that brought up for them moments where they felt discriminated against in their own lives. I talked to two managers who are immigrants. One immigrated from China when she was five and one immigrated from the Dominican Republic when he was five. And they talked about, you know, being vividly remembering being made fun of when they went to their elementary school classrooms and were made fun of for their strong accents and that that was something that really stuck with them and that, you know, they think about when they interact with customers who maybe have broken English or accents of their own and and how they can sort of apply that to their lives professionally. Yeah, district managers. I'm. Uh, I was c- c- just where we're coming from is you know corporate training is often just dumb. Um, well, it's, it's silly. Uh, it's 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 an effort to check a box yeah. so the lawyers can say, oh no, we trained them. Um, but I'm getting the article from your piece in the Washington Post that you didn't get a lot of that attitude out of folks. No, no, not at all. And and the district managers that I spoke with are very much in the stores that they manage across the New York area, but also the Starbucks executives at, you know, Howard Schultz's level and Kevin Johnson's level also went through the identical training themselves. So so it's from the top all the way all the way down to the bottom. Did they think they had a systemic problem at Starbucks? I mean this this the incident that started the whole thing could have been one barista who had a problem, if even if that's the case. Um did they think they had a problem company wide? 
You know, from the very beginning, they said that this was not an issue that was spurred by one particular manager at this one store in Philadelphia. And from the very get-go, when when executives went to Philadelphia to meet with the two men who were were arrested, they said, you know, this was a company-wide failure. This is something that we take ultimate responsibility for. Um, And it really has not been pinned on this one manager at all. Um, And I think that that is really being shown by the fact that 175,000 employees went through this training yesterday. Whoa, 175,000. That's incredible. Yeah, they closed 8,000 stores um, and 175,000 employees, and then the Starbucks executives all went through the exact same training. So and it's I heard really him, a company-wide effort. And I heard uh, Schultz ask about the, the the amount of money they lost, which was gazillions of dollars, and he said, no, we, we made money because it's an investment in the future mm-hmm. and being a better company. So Yeah, I get that. Yeah, Rachel Siegel, national business reporter for the Washington Post uh, on the line. Rachel, uh, good to talk. Thanks for the report. Uh, it's uh, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Sure. You got it. Bye-bye. I don't suppose that there's a downside. I think it was an overreaction. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, what kind of pressure is that put on other companies when you have a a rogue McDonald's employee, you know, dropping in bomb or something? Somebody, right. do you have to close every store in the country and train everybody for four hours, right. or you can just say, no, we had one dumb employee. We got a million employees, and one of them did something dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And listen, it's hard. It's because I don't want anybody treated badly or made to feel, you know, less than. But, you know, during some of that interview, I thought, okay, every little kid is mocked. Every little kid is belittled for something or other. My daughter was a complete outcast, mocked a lot by a lot of people. She happens to be white. So where does her experience fit into the mosaic of wandering into Starbucks and feeling uncomfortable? I mean, yeah. Yep. That's uh, that's more a, complicated. That's a very good question. Yeah, it's a very good question. Of course, um, I've taught her to make coffee at home and save a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show.